Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. You've got Vikram here from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 21st podcast. On this episode, we look at stablecoins, centralized ones, decentralized ones, what they're going to be used for, and what kind of risks might arise from them. We discuss exchange listings again, this time with the basic attention token getting listed on Coinbase, and finish up with a discussion on Tether. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. Hope you enjoy this one. Thanks. Hey everyone, you've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. Hey everyone. So today, Circle put out, uh, so Circle team, they have kind of this uh, research blog and we'll link to the stuff in the show notes, but they put out a article called A Deeper Look at Stablecoins and USDC. And thought it'd be pretty interesting to talk about this particular topic, especially now because the Flooded isn't the right word, but I will say that we've definitely seen a lot of news on the stablecoin front. I think there was a little chatter about it. last year. Obviously, the one of the biggest players here is Tether, USDT, which has had so much influence on the market. And I think there's quite a bit of narrative there, particularly with last year's run and a lot of people thinking that last year's tremendous run has to, had to do with the fact that Tether was so involved. And in addition to that, the risk associated with Tether going away is that that would make the market collapse. So there's a lot of stuff at stake with respect to stablecoins. So looking forward to talking about all that stuff. So I'll, I'll just read the first line of the Circle blog. I mean, this is a pretty simple explanation of what a stablecoin is and why, why they're important. Stablecoins are cryptocurrencies designed to maintain a stable value. Where cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are known for their price volatility, the aim of a stablecoin is to maintain a consistent and predictable level of buying power. And then they go on to say, Today, stablecoins play a critical role within crypto asset markets by serving as a fiat on-ramp for participants. Additionally, they allow traders to seamlessly exit volatile crypto asset positions. And then they claim that stablecoins are going to be a pretty big feature of the future financial system. But yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think, Faison? What are your views on this topic? Yeah, I mean, as an idea, the use is pretty clear. If I'm trading, for example, and especially you can imagine the run-up or even the collapse of the market that happened last year, you want something that you can settle into that's not volatile. And if, let's say, it's not easy for your exchange to settle to fiat or it doesn't support that, you're sort of left high and dry. So having a stable coin or many stable coins that you can settle to to avoid the volatility is definitely a I think critical feature for like a healthy crypto market. Yeah, and I would say that it's important now given that Bitcoin has not reached full maturity or anything like that. Yeah. If, you know, if it was 20 years from now and Bitcoin is a reserve asset, I think that'll be an interesting point of discussion around what that means for stablecoins too, but we're not necessarily going to get into that right now. Yeah, but in the optimistic scenario where cryptocurrencies do take off, do very well. Bitcoin does go to a much higher value. Again, it's not going to be a good reserve currency necessarily. And so I, I agree with the idea that we'll need, we'll need something else. 
And the other reason this topic is interesting is we're seeing some pretty big players issuing stablecoins. Obviously, last year, Tether was the big one, and there were a lot of smaller projects. But now we're seeing ones coming from you know Coinbase and Circle with USDC, and then uh, Gemini, which is another uh, big exchange, launching their own stablecoin. And what's interesting to me is these are some of the more regulated exchanges that do allow conversion to fiat that are also launching stablecoins. So it, in a way, it, it can be seen as gaining some more legitimacy. Yeah. I'll give you my like kind of knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. My knee-jerk reaction is that this defeats the whole purpose of crypto. It defeats the whole purpose of like permissionless decentralized currency. It creates like KYC, AML bottlenecks for people who want to participate in the market. And probably the thing that comes to mind immediately is we're making a a giant claim by calling them stable coins before they've proven themselves. There's very few assets that are traded regularly on an active basis that have maintained value over a long period of time. And not just maintain value, but limit volatility over a long period of time. But anyway, that's my immediate gut reaction. And I think there are probably some interesting applications of this and whatnot, and we should talk about those and stuff. But that's what my immediate reaction to it is. It's like uh, calling a ship unsinkable before it make, finishes its maiden voyage. Right. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> so just broadly, I know we keep talking about volatility and being able to settle into something with consistent buying power. But, uh, you know, in my mind, the two scenarios that I can think of, of who this is useful for is anyone that's trading that wants to get money out of Bitcoin or what have you quickly into something that's pegged to, let's say, the dollar, for example. And then also, because a lot of these things are issued by exchanges or some relatively large parties, they make some money either off of exchange fees or being essentially controlling the supply of some asset that becomes valuable. Any other thoughts on who this is useful for or who benefits from this? Yeah, I mean, look, like we keep hearing talk about regulation, custody, the kinds of things that institutions care about. I can't imagine Fidelity would want to get involved with Tether given how much drama around Tether there is. But perhaps if there was a more reliable source of stable coin of US dollar stability tied to some kind of cryptocurrency, maybe that's more interesting to them because then they can say, oh, it's basically like I'm just getting a receipt. Like It's like me putting money into Bank of America and getting a receipt that I actually have that and then I can trade it. Right. Right. Except I guess the main innovation is rather than storing it in the bank's database, it's still a dollar, but on the blockchain as opposed to the bank's record of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think implementation wise, that's totally true. But in terms of how they think about it, I'm guessing that they would not want to deal with any of the risk associated with working with Tether, like an unaudited entity that has bank in Malta. It just sounds, the whole situation sounds ridiculous. But like if maybe Coinbase and Circle and Gemini, these are much more well-regulated groups in the US that they could fathom doing business with. So it gives them the opportunity to participate in the market. So now they can use that to trade actively. So that's, that's one group. You know, if there's some kind of ICO security token craze that's going to come down the pipeline, that could benefit them as well for the same reasons. Now they have a fiat on-ramp. I mean, most of the things that are coming to mind are basically like fiat on-ramps for participating in the crypto market that they weren't able to participate in last year. Right. Another thing, like, I don't know how this totally works internationally. Like, if you're in Hong Kong, you're going to wire Hong Kong dollars to... 
Gemini to get USDC to trade on Gemini's exchange. I'm just not sure what the implementation is. Yeah, it seems to me like any of the stablecoins issued by the regulated exchanges will have the same currency controls as the dollar. So it doesn't add much value, but we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, it helps it helps these guys capture the market too, like with larger institutions. Basically, if you say you're a larger institution, you want to play in this market and you haven't been able to because of Tether, because of any number of reasons. Now you know that Coinbase, Gemini Circle are going to let you be able to get quote-unquote reliable Tether, and then you can play the market. But you have to actually go through them for the USDC and also to trade because there's only going to be a handful of places that support USDC. So there's definitely a business case for for those guys. Yeah, stable, stable coins versus unstable, stable coins. Right. <laughs> so the next thing that I wanted to discuss, because we keep talking about you know Tether versus what Gemini issues versus uh, Coinbase issues, is the idea that Stable coins, you know, they come in many different different flavors. Broadly speaking, we have uh, centralized and decentralized ones, and then within the the more centralized and the more decentralized stable coins, based on implementation, there's there's a few varieties. So first, I wanted to discuss the more centralized stable coins. So the two are the fiat backed and the exchange traded commodities backed. So firstly, the fiat backed are the ones that we've uh, discussed and the, the ones I think that most people are familiar with, like your Tether or your the one issued by Gemini, where the backing is actually off-chain, meaning in the case of dollars, the actual dollars are kept by a bank or similar institution on behalf of the issuer. And so if I wanted to issue you know, $100 million worth of Gemini's coin, then that means that there's $100 million in US dollars sitting in a bank account backing that currency. Mm-hmm. Pretty straightforward concept, I think, to understand. But the big risk here is it's very trust-based system in that you, you're trusting the issuers, the auditors, and the bank to be behaving honestly and responsibly. So you, you essentially have to have the level of trust for the institutions involved that you do for like your current bank. Otherwise... It has more risk than the U.S. dollar. And then the other risk is also the loss of value of the underlying item. So if you convert all your Bitcoin to USD and the value of USD goes down, you've given up some of that. Like You still have volatility, whatever your underlying asset is. Right. Now, the idea is that the U.S. dollar should be a lot more stable than any cryptocurrency today. But fundamentally, there's no like universal unit of value that never loses buying power. So it, that's, I think, the big trade-off. And then there's just an underlying cost to maintaining the system that has to come from somewhere because these are actual banks and auditors and issuers running the show. Yeah, I wonder how that works, actually. That's a good point. I wonder what their calculus for this is, like how many, how much money they're putting towards this and how much they expect to make and like exchange fees and whatnot. Probably an interesting, uh, interesting model. Yeah. So if you're an exchange, I think the business case probably is pretty straightforward because you probably mint money in exchange fees, at least based on what we've seen the exchanges do in volume. But beyond that, it's probably a relatively risky proposition if you actually have to raise capital or spend your own money. You know, you're putting up dollars or or euros at the end of the day. I guess one other risk that comes to mind, too, is just a a liquidity risk. So, you know, if you're an institution and you want to work with Gemini, the Gemini dollar. Yeah. Do you know how much they're printing? I'm not sure. Okay. I don't even know if it's like a hundred million, a billion. Like I would be surprised if it's a billion. Like it's probably yeah. closer to it's probably 100. well into the hundreds of millions, but I'd be surprised if it's a billion. Yeah. So 
you know, what happens if there's a crash and people want to get out? That, that's a very reasonable concern. So like a, you know, a bunch of institutions have owned this Gemini dollar and they've bought Bitcoin. Bitcoin's crashing and they want to get out. Like, what does that mean? You have that risk in any market, but in here, because of the centralization phenomenon, that, that risk is heightened. And at the end of the day, I think these are relatively small entities we're dealing with in that, like, I don't know that Gemini could afford to lose half a billion or a billion dollars if there was some major market collapse. Right. So everyone's still, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty small player in this space. And then other one of these very centralized stable coins are exchange traded commodities backed. So structurally, it's basically the same idea as fiat backed, except rather than having it against the US dollar or the euro, it's against something like uh, gold. So an example of this is the Digix gold token. And so, yeah, not much more to say on that, but you can have something like gold as your underlying asset for one of these centralized off-chain stablecoins. Digix gold token. How did you come across this one? I was just looking for exchange-traded commodity-backed token, and that is one that came right up. Okay. It's sitting at $43. Yeah, market cap is about $3 million, so not something that I would necessarily treat as gold. Right. It's not a lot of gold. It's not? Three million? No, it's not much. In the grand scheme of things as a stable coin. <laughs> right. But just, you know, it's an example of one that if people want to dive deeper, they can read the implementation and get an idea of how it all works. And then the interesting ones from a like technical or crypto standpoint are the the decentralized ones. This is a much smaller like cohort just in terms of market cap compared to like your tethers and your and similar. But in this, there's two main categories. So there's a uh, cryptocurrency backed and algorithmic. So first we'll talk about cryptocurrency backed. So the idea is similar to, you know, backing something against the US dollar. Here, you're backing against a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin being the obvious one where you treat that as your reserve. And then if you have some much more volatile altcoins, that would be sort of the thing that you're trading. And since it's on chain, you could make the case that it's not quite as unsafe as just having like trusting the auditor or the bank that's holding the asset. Here you can actually see the crypto that it's it's backed with. There are ones that have done this via ERC20 tokens and smart contracts. So you're pegging your thing to the a fixed value, but the implementation of this rather than being handled by a traditional bank is done via smart contracts and on-chain. So the most common case here is actually just a loan against collateral. So let's say you have... 100 Bitcoin, and you, what you can basically do is put up, say, 50 Bitcoin as collateral, and then take out 25 or 30 Bitcoin equivalent of the stablecoin. And that tends to be the case. So what you're seeing with these is that the ratio is tends not to be one-to-one when you're putting up the collateral, because there's still quite a bit of volatility in the underlying currency and also in the thing that you're getting rid of you tend to have to be over collateralized. So if you're putting up 50 Bitcoin, you're going to get less than 50 Bitcoin back in the alternate stablecoin. And so it's weird because it's not like you're selling your Bitcoin and getting a US dollar tether. You're putting up Bitcoin and it's almost like putting your money in an account that either pays interest or gives you some amount of credit. So it's, it's slightly different, but it accomplishes the same thing. One really interesting thing to note about these is for many of these, they're designed to revert to the underlying cryptocurrency if the price drops far enough. So if a market crashes, all of a sudden your 
like stablecoin can just turn back into the underlying crypto asset. Yep. And so there's a lot of probably unwanted consequences of that. And then one of the more well-known examples of an algorithmic or a crypto-backed stablecoin was a Newbits. It actually managed to hold its price for, I think, over a year, like maintain its peg. And then eventually that broke and it, it's, I think, at below 20% of what it's supposed to be at now. And Newbits was backed by by what? I think it was just a dollar. Yeah, it was supposed to be pegged to a US dollar. Okay. So I think the idea with these was just that rather than than having the backing happening at a bank, you're still having it happen on a blockchain and enforced via smart contract. Mm-hmm. But these are still dramatically less popular than just your fiat-backed uh, stablecoin. Yep. And then the final one are the uh, algorithmic stable coins. And so the the most well-known example of these is the, you know, the DAI, DAI. Mm-hmm. So basically the idea is you have a DAO, a decentralized anonymous organization that is governs the implementation of the stable coin. And so there's an algorithm that's supposed to maintain the the peg. And basically what happens is if you see the demand drop, supply increase, so so let's say the price is moving away from a one-to-one peg, the idea is that the algorithm issues bonds to increase the demand. And then the buyers of this bond are going to be at the front of the line when a new stable coin is issued. So essentially, as the price starts dropping, this algorithm will issue bonds. Bondholders will buy those bonds with the underlying asset, which would prop the price back up. And then what they get in reward for that is like front of the line for new issuance. So this sounds well and good, but it really relies on the idea that the demand is going to recover. If the demand never recovers or the bondholder or the prospective bond buyers don't think it will, then no one buys the bonds and there's nothing to stop the price from falling. So what's interesting about this is that it's supposedly similar to uh, quantitative easing. And so what are your thoughts on quantitative easing and its pros and cons? So first off, with respect to this, like basically they have the theory that there's going to be like a buyer of last resort because they're going to issue these bonds. And then at some point there'll be like a market equilibrium and then there'll be a group that comes in, buys them. And then those are the, they're going to be at the front of the line for a new issuance. That's like their theory. Yeah. I mean, it does sound actually very similar to quantitative easing. So with QE in the traditional market, which has been going on for like 10 years right now since the 2008 crisis, and even though interest rates have gone up a little bit, they're still pretty low. So we've basically been seeing money get printed by the Fed in amounts that we can't really audit or know. And the original idea behind QE was that, you know, we had the credit crunch. No one wanted to lend to one another because nobody knew how much bad debt the other person was holding. So like commerce itself came to a standstill. People weren't able to ship goods from one place to another. Ships weren't able to get like oil to ship themselves to another place. Basically, the, the whole, all of commerce had come to a standstill. And because these things were tight and no one was spending, no one was lending, the Fed and central banks thought that they needed to do something to get people spending again. So they dropped rates a ton and they kept printing fiat. And by dropping interest rate and printing dollars, for example, the US Fed, they were able to get money flowing again. So I guess I see the similarity there. We won't know like how things would have gone differently. Like if, if they decided not to have done anything, 
what would that have meant for society? Would that have been a Great Depression that led to all kinds of unrest, which eventually led, would lead to war? Like, we don't know. I mean, that's just speculation. Or would it, would the market have figured itself out? Would companies that should have gone bankrupt just gone bankrupt faster? Because there were companies that got involved in QE, but still went bankrupt. You know, lots of little banks, obviously financial players, but even non-financial players, they were like kind of debt heavy consultancies. There was like a, a business of debt heavy consultancies and the management consultancies during that era. And a few of them went bankrupt, I remember. But it took a while. So maybe, you know, we just don't know like how things would have played out. I mean, it's fun to speculate, but we can't have it drive like future decisions necessarily. But there are some major downsides to, but we, what we can talk about are like these downsides with QE. So the Fed basically has this inflation target in mind of a couple percent per year. And they want to keep interest rates at a level where that doesn't go crazy. And the problem with that is that it's pretty mind-boggling because the target itself is really out of whack with the rest of the world. Like since QE over the last 10 years, I think we can all say that asset prices have gone insane. You know, real estate prices have gone insane. Why have they gone insane? Because one reason is banks have been able to borrow tons of capital and put that money towards real estate. That's one very specific example. But when you have a lot of money flowing into a one area, like all the assets in that area are going to go up in value. So, you know, we, we've seen that. We've seen cost of goods have gone insane. Going to restaurants like doubled. You know, these are all the consequences of money flooding into a system. Like, as I mentioned, like when you offer dollars into a market, those dollars need to be put to work. So, Kind of similar idea here, just if you want to go to like a different industry, is that with federal student loans, saw some stats recently, the very high percentage of U.S. government debt goes towards these federal loans. And when you put uh, new capital into that market, that market's just going to eat up all that capital. So the way things have gone, university prices have gone insane, you know, double, tripled over a really short amount of time for no reason other than money flooding that market. So. That's the biggest risk of QE, or at least in this last round. So when you get you get an inflated stock market, capital rushing into real estate and other deflationary assets. So it basically forces the process of using capital. So those downsides are pretty obvious. Like it just makes day-to-day living more expensive. For a lot of people, that's super devastating. Like if not just if you live in a big city and your rents are rising, that that sucks too. But like if you're in the middle of the U.S. somewhere, want to buy groceries and you have a big family, for example, that's just it's very expensive. So with this kind of thing and with this kind of stable coin where they're thinking about things in those terms, it's really uh, it just sounds very naive. You know, Donald Rumsfeld, he had this whole thing, unknown unknowns speech during the Gulf War and things like that really piss people off. Like we don't people don't want to acknowledge uncertainty and whatnot, but we kind of have to. The fact that's actually what I was thinking of when I said unstable stable coins. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the fact of the matter is, we don't know what the consequences of many of the systems we have in, in place. So my worry about these kind of stable coins that try to programmatically emulate QE is that they just don't keep into mind any other considerations of like how the world actually works. Yeah. Like, I don't know if they will succeed, but I'm actually curious to see that if an algorithmic stable coin does succeed, like what is going to be the journey of like how it evolves? What are all the unintended consequences that end up surfacing? Like in my mind, if it succeeds, then there's going to be like a process of 
things being learned and the algorithm being updated. And it's like, I'm sure stuff that we've seen happen before, but with its own sort of twist in the crypto world. Right. The one other thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, I think someone from the Gemini team put out an article about this today, but particularly with the centralized stable coins is the idea of a counterparty risk. So can you speak to what that is and some like non-crypto examples of where things have gone south because of counterparty risk? Yeah, I mean, counterparty risk is basically any risk you have while you're working with another party. I mean, this is very commonly referred to in financial circles, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a bank or a lender or anything like that. Like, you know, Apple has counterparty risk for with all its small third-party chip suppliers. They won't be able to ship iPhones and Macs if if their third-party suppliers can't hit their numbers, right? You know, Tesla has all kinds of counterparty risk, financial, non-financial, supply chain. You know, alternative energy companies use a lot of rare earth minerals in their actual products. And there was a period of time, like a few years ago, where those materials were super hard to get. And it ended up leading to a bunch of them missing their numbers and whatnot. So that's that's counterparty risk. It's just risk that you have with the parties that you work with if they don't deliver on their obligations. Hmm. And then uh, we often like to talk about uh, alerts that we've uh, found in our system recently or just uh, trends that we're seeing. Before I get in- into that, I know you had spotted something with BAT. Yeah. So last time on our podcast, we talked about ZeroX, Project ZeroX getting added to Coinbase and how that ended up popping the price of ZRX 20 to 30%. So we saw the exact same thing happen again with BAT. It's BAT, it's Basic Attention Token. Brendan Ike, who is the self-proclaimed creator of JavaScript, is working on a new browser, the Brave browser. And I've tried it. It's actually pretty good. And he funded... I mean, his company basically funded the development of that platform through the sale of these BAT tokens. I think the idea is there is that publishers will be able to earn income with BAT over time. So anyway, they got listed on Coinbase too, and we it came through our dashboard pretty quickly. And that was pretty cool to see. So again, listen to the last podcast. We go into more detail about like why exchange listings end up moving coins and why listings end up moving coins too. Uh, we look at ZRX on the listing side and then Mysterium, it's this uh, privacy coin on the delisting side. But they can have pretty tremendous moves. So we watch a bunch of these alerts and we watch a lot of these listings and delistings. So they're a pretty good spot to generate some alpha with. Nice. And then uh, we have been seeing, you know, what brought on this whole idea of uh, talking about stable coins was a lot of stablecoin news has been coming through. So the first big one is if anyone's been following along with Tether, you know, Tether has always claimed to have U.S. dollars in their bank accounts backing any Tether that they issue. And they've issued quite a lot. And also part of their system involves uh, buying back tokens and then burning them. So both issuance and buyback and burn are part of maintaining that peg. So they recently burned uh, half a billion dollars of tokens in a buyback which was pretty big news. That's that's a lot. And then the other even bigger news that came out was, so first they claimed to have started a relationship with this new bank and uh, check the name. It's, it's like uh, Del- I think Del- Bahamas-based. Deltec Bank and Trust Limited. Yeah, and it's uh, in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. 
So basically, they said that they have a new relationship with Dell Tech, and that's where all the money is. And there were a number of uh, alerts on our end related to articles that came out where people were like, you know, where's the proof? Yeah. <laughs> then just recently, uh, Dell Tech basically confirmed Tether's statements. So they just put out something small saying that like, yeah, this is correct. And so the claim is that Tether actually has $1.8 billion backing Tether in this bank in the Bahamas. And it's supposedly, you know, the first time such a figure has been confirmed by the bank. So that's a pretty big deal if you're, well, whether you're pro or not, if you're Tether, it's a big deal. Yeah, this is like super controversial. Tether is so controversial because, you know, not to their credit, they have not been open about their finances. And people have been pounding the table for an audit and stuff. And they have a relationship with Bitfinex that's not clear. And like, there's all this, there's this guy, Bitfinex, who's he's on Twitter. He's always talking shit about Tether. Anytime Tether drops below its peg, you see all these people like flood to Twitter. Like Patio 11 suddenly makes all these comments on Bitcoin and Tether and, and his, <laughs> his research on the space. These are people who are like, are really not involved in crypto closely. And I think that there are a lot of people who just want Tether to fail, to be like, oh, 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 see, I told you so. Like the only reason Bitcoin ran from a thousand to six thousand to twenty thousand was because of Tether. And now it's going to go back. Now it's going to go to zero. It's a Ponzi scheme, like blah, blah, blah. It's the same same crowd that is like uh, super anti-Tether. I'm not pro-Tether and I'm not anti-Tether. I just don't know what the state of the matter is. Like there's stuff I'd like to see from them, which is like a reliable audit, like maybe some more public facing commentary and like what they're doing and what they are planning to do. And on the flip side, like it's worth like looking at the other side of the common view. Like what if they're solvent? What if they are solvent? Then what? So I wonder what this will look like in five years. Like, will we ever know like what kind of role Tether really played, what their status was and whatnot. If we see a bunch of other stable coins come to the market, you know, they might just become like a second class citizen. Like larger institutions are not going to work with them. They're going to work with the Geminis of the world. Just a question then. So let's say they are like entirely legitimate and solvent and all of these uh, like questions people have are, are unfounded in terms of everything is fine with Tether. What incentive do they have to not be more transparent and publish regular audits and show that they're solvent and, you know, basically dispel all of this doubt? So I'll give you one. I don't know if this is the reason, but some this is something right. that comes yeah, to Yeah, we're mind. just speculating yeah. here just because I, I, I can't think of anything. Yeah. So there's this whole hedge fund registration process for funds of a certain size. So the way it used to be was that you actually didn't need to register up to a certain size. And that's, I don't know if the dollar number is like 75 mil or 100 mil or something like that. But after that point, you have to register with the SEC. When you register with the SEC, they can do things like, audit's not the right word, but they may like request to see your trades, like send us all your trades. So you, you, know, you have your back office person like compile an Excel of all your trades in the last like four years and you send it to them. And that's very invasive. Because it gives away the way you make money. It gives away your business model. Like, even if they say that they're going to keep it private, like, if you have edge in the market, it's going to give it away. Because it's not like it just goes to one person. They promise never to tell anyone again. It goes to, like, a group of people. And then 
that influences their thinking over time. And maybe they see like, oh, there's this corner of the market that's not illegal, but there's all these hedge funds who are taking advantage of it. So now we should probably start coming down on that. Right. So I guess the analogy I'm making here is that maybe they don't want to because it gives away some key portion of their business. Yeah. Interesting. So there are some things that we'd love to see from them. And I think if they could just openly say that they're solvent and get like some stamp of approval there, that would be awesome. But to the rest of your question, like maybe it's a a trade secret type of stuff. I'm not sure. Yeah, because that was the thing that always confused me. And I'm sure is the reason why so many people are skeptical is the whole like, if you have nothing to hide, why not be more transparent? But that makes sense. Yeah. The other thing that came through that was interesting was... uh, so uh, PwC or PricewaterhouseCoopers, so they're not just doing audits, but they've actually begun advising this team, uh, Cred, on their issuance of a stablecoin. And so I just thought that was interesting because to sort of pick a specific one in an advisory capacity as opposed to just being an auditor mm-hmm. was a interesting shift. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that is interesting. And it kind of reminds me of the episode that we it was episode two we we recorded with adiraj gupta of crypto launchpad yep and the kind of advisory and investment banking type of services that they provided to icos and i think a lot of their team had some kind of relationship with pwc too so it's just interesting seeing that they're i guess i don't know much about pwc apart from that they're do mostly accounting but i guess they have some kind of consulting angle as well yeah. From my understanding, most of the big four do a lot of the auditing piece as well. But I didn't know about the consulting piece. Yeah. And I guess that auditing and stable coins probably go hand to hand more than, say, auditing and ICOs, right? Right. So maybe there's a, maybe it's good for them to get involved in this because they can build their stable coin auditing business down the line. Yeah. And I think the, the rest of the article was really talking about how there there is no, like framework or playbook or guideline for how you can audit a stablecoin because it's everything's all over the place right now. Yep. Because in, in my mind, if they start advising one in a consulting capacity, does that create a conflict for their auditing business in any way? Or is that not really an issue? I would think it would or should create a conflict, but this is such an early space. They have to get their you know hands in the pie somehow. So maybe this is a start. So it's more of them just getting some exposure than necessarily picking a winner. Right. It's like business development for them. Yeah, that makes sense. It just caught my eye because I raised a few of these questions. Because mm-hmm. in my mind, it, if their primary function is auditing, then they're relatively impartial and they don't pick specific ones in an advisory capacity. But if that's not the case, then it's a slightly different situation. Yep. And also on the topic of stable coins, another article that we saw come through was to do with the uh, sort of just the quantity, like the amount of activity there is. And so there's supposedly 57 total stable coins of which 39% are live. And then the rest are in the pre-sale phase. Okay. (laughs) So 57. Yeah. So that's a lot of stable coins. But more interestingly is about, you know, 61% of that are like not yet launched. So like there's a huge wave of them coming. So Basically, most of these active projects have come in over the last 12 to 18 months, and more than a dozen of them are planning to launch in the coming weeks and months. And so we're seeing a lot of stable coins coming. It was pretty funny because this article, just like the one line in this article, 
we now have 45 projects fighting for the exact same prize. Imagine the 45th stablecoin founder convincing investors to spend money on a project going up against 44 exact replicas. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, not sure if I feel worse for the founder or right. investor. <laughs> well, I guess like the, the more stable coins they have, the more stability you have, right? Is that how that works? <laughs> I guess. But another interesting stat here was uh, 66% are pegged to the US dollar. And then uh, 34% are, you know, pegged to other commodities, euro, gold, and smaller, like some of the more obscure yeah. stuff. I wonder who's doing this stuff. Because like the exchanges, like we talked about it, it makes a ton of sense. It basically generates more trading yeah. revenue for them. If you're not an exchange, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Yeah, that's a good question. It's probably there. So this article came out of a report that was published by uh, Blockchain Research. And we'll link the report in the show notes. And there's some information about who's raised and how much they've raised. Like Basis, which was one of the ones we had mentioned as a algorithmic coin, has raised $133 million, for example. So that's quite a bit of money for a brand new stablecoin. Yeah, that's a lot. Like I'm looking at the rest. There, there are a bunch in the one to three million range. Yeah. And then Center is a big one, 20 million, Terra, yeah. 32, Dai, 27, True USD, 22, and then Basis is like 133. Yeah. And so the, the total raise is over 300 mil. But then if you look at the uh, the market caps, I mean, you know, Tether is supposedly over 2 billion, but even some of these other small ones, like the Dai is over 50 million, True USD is over 70 million. So if they succeed, there's definitely a lot of upside there. Another uh, note that was in this article that I found interesting was uh, while there's a great deal of excitement surrounding stablecoins, the technology is still nascent and is highly unlikely that the perfect stablecoin design exists at present. Further experimentation is expected. Due to the aforementioned design uncertainty, as well as regional factors, space may exist for approximately five to six significant stablecoins in the short to medium term. So this, this goes back to your question about maybe more is better so you know they make the, th the claim that there's like a, a sweet spot where you need a few to account for a we had discussed the different implementations but also this regional factor item is interesting because maybe because of kyc aml stuff these very regular like these regulated coins from gemini or coinbase are not a viable solution for some markets and so we see some winners in that space so the five to eight number is interesting because I guess if you are an investor and there's 50 projects, but like there's a good chance that 10 are going to succeed, then that probably I would expect that's a pretty bullish scenario for investing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, who knows? Everything is so new. Yeah. I mean, going back to my original initial knee jerk reaction, I think like there's just a lot of stuff we don't know about the space. And once you get into algorithmically creating and modifying and changing financial markets, you just create all kinds of tail risks that you won't really see until after it happens. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks.